morning. Would you pray with me? May your word be our rule and your spirit our teacher and the glory of Christ our single concern. Amen. Our second lesson comes from Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test? You hypocrites, show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this? Whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you taken one of those uh, who should I vote for quizzes? Where it, uh, you know, you, you, you... rank how much you care about climate change and whether you think soda should be taxed and, and you, you, you fill it out and then you get an answer and it's like an 88% match with some candidate that you're supposed to vote for. This is not one of those questions on that quiz. This is a question that is far less benign than one of those questions that might sway us to vote for one candidate or for another. This isn't just asking how much, you know, well, what's your stance on tax reform, Jesus? This is a sinister question that could cost Jesus his life, could split the crowd in two, could start a rebellion based on his answer. And in Jesus' simple and coy response, he does two things somehow. He insists on the dignity of Pharisees and Herodians and all people, And he suffocates the flames of division that they are trying to stoke. He suffocates the flames of division that we so often roast each other over. And in doing those things, I think he gives us the chance, the hope, that perhaps we can be a people in a world divided who shine like stars in the universe because of a gentleness that allows us to see another option. The story comes from Matthew 22, so we know that it's getting towards the end of Matthew. So, so, so Jesus has just entered Jerusalem for what will be the final time. In Matthew 21, uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly, goes straight up to the temple, and turns the tables upside down, making enemies of a lot of people in religious circles. And so the Pharisees and said, and so, so at this point, people are getting together and be like, all right, what are we going to do to bring this guy down? Um, and then 
Jesus tells a, a parable that in our Bibles is often called the parable of the wicked tenants, which doesn't make him any friends. It's clearly about the religious leaders. Um, and and, and, and um, the text says, quote, the chief priests and the Pharisees realized that he was speaking about them and they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. So this is the context of the story that we get to the, the religious leaders opposed to the crowds. The crowds love him, love that they're calling the, you know, the political elite wicked tenants. It's great. Um, and the Pharisees are trying to figure out how are they going to bring Jesus down. So Jesus is, is in the temple for this story. The, Jesus, the Jewish leaders are sorting out how to silence Jesus. And so, uh, so, so, so we get to our text the Pharisees don't even come to Jesus themselves because they know that would be a little bit obvious and Jesus would see right through it immediately. So they send their disciples. Like Jesus, they had their own disciples. And these are young, these are young kids, high school-aged kids um, who, are, who are training under the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees send them alongside of some Herodians to go with, uh, to go with them to ask Jesus this question. Herodians were fans of Herod. Herod the Great was the king when Jesus was born. We'll read the Christmas story in like, gosh, like five, six weeks. It's so soon. It's crazy. Um, but we'll read the, the Christmas story about Herod the Great, who is the king during Jesus' birth. Um, and then his son, Herod Agrippa, takes over from him. So Herodians are, are it's not entirely clear, they're either fans of the whole Herodic, is that the right word? The Herodian line, um, or they're, they're just fans of Herod Agrippa. They're fans of the establishment. They think that the people in charge are doing a good job, and likely they're lining their pockets because of it. They're fans of cooperation with Rome. Remember, um, the, the Jewish people are living under, under the empire of Rome as, as a conquered people. And, and so they're sorting out, how do we live as Jews but also stay alive? And the Herodians' answer is, well, you, you pay your taxes you suck up to Rome. You do whatever you have to do to keep the giant happy so that we can continue to live. So Herodians are fans of Herod. Um, and, and, and Jesus is, hasn't exactly, is not on good terms with Herod. He's called him out on a couple of things. John the Baptist is famous for calling him out. So, 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 so they're not huge fans of Jesus already. And they're big proponents of Rome. And so when, when there's sniffs of a rebellion, they report it to Rome right away. And, and they're not friends of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are kind of the blue-collar religious leaders. And if the Gospels didn't paint such a negative picture of them, we'd probably like them a little bit. They're, they're, they're earnest about figuring out how do we apply the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to life today? How do we be faithful Jews under Rome, but their answer to the question is to resist all the sort of cultural things that Rome wants to do. They're not a fan of this tax. And in general, the people like the Pharisees because they're blue collar. They, they, they sort of resist a lot of Rome's influence on them. So the Herodians and the Pharisees are enemies, um, but they're willing to team up if it means bringing Jesus down because neither of them care much for Jesus and his kingdom and what he's up to. And, and, and so the, the Herodians and the Pharisees get together and they decide, let's go ask him this question. This, we might be able to get it. There's no safe answer here. So they come up to him and they flatter him. Teacher, they call him. We know that you're sincere. You tell the truth. You don't skirt out of answers. You teach the way of God. You don't show deference to anyone. And you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor? Um, 
They're not asking about paying all taxes. For example, the the, the Pharisees don't ask if the people should continue to pay the 20% temple tax that they would have paid when they entered the temple. They're not worried about that tax. They're not worried about the local taxes. They're worried about a very specific tax that was instituted by the emperor in the year Jesus was born, when the census was called and all people went to their hometown so they could be registered, so they could be taxed. Rome applied a tax to all their conquered peoples that kept the poor poor and kept the rich rich. And so they're asking about this specific tax that pays taxes to the emperor, and you could pay it with your crops, with land if you ran out of money, or with your money. And so the people hated it. They hated it. It was oppressive. And in 6 AD, there was actually a rebellion uh, led by Judas of Galilee that in, in response to this census that had now been in place for a few years, and the people were sick of it. And so there was a rebellion that, that rose up, and, and Rome just, you know, slaughtered, just squashed the rebellion as quickly as they could. And, and, and so this is the tax that people, that they're asking Jesus about. Not just the normal everyday tax. It's this tax that the people despise. And so now we get to Jesus' response. And he starts by saying, Show me the coin, which is a brilliant move. It buys him a little time to think. I like to think that he has to like, think of his answer. Maybe he already has it. I don't know. But I think it buys him a little time. Is there, uh, who's got a coin? Someone have a coin? We didn't expect this. So they pull out a coin, and they pull out a denarius, which is a Roman coin. Jewish coins didn't have graven images on them because that would be a violation of the second commandment. Um, to grave an image of a person onto anything was a violation of God's second commandment. And so the Jewish, the, the, the coins produced by Judea were just um, metal coins made out of what, you know, copper or bronze or whatever. Um, Tom can probably tell us what, what they were made out of. He's the coin expert. Um, but, but they had no graven image on it because that was a violation of the second commandment. Um, and so to enter the temple with the coin of Rome with a graven image on it was against the law. And so Jesus says, pull out a coin. And this is, I think, probably why he calls them hypocrites, because they pull out a coin, and it's got the image of the emperor right on it. And he asks them, whose name and whose script? Um, Epigraph is the Greek word. Whose icon is the the Greek word for image? But it's this idea of image. It's the image that's used in Genesis for the image of God. And then he asks, whose epigraph, whose inscription is on it? And they say, Caesar's. And, and, and the inscription is, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, high priest, is the inscription that's on the coin. And so Jesus has them pull out a coin, and they pull out a denarius, and he says, oh, you shouldn't have come in with that in your pocket, but they have. Um, and, and, and so they're, they're, they're hypocrites in that sense. It was just kind of a fun little, gotcha. Um, okay, where am I? Um, so Caesar's image is on the coin. Coin is the form of propaganda. There, there, there's no statues. So the Caesar imprints his name so that people get to know that he's the Lord, that he's the, the emperor, son of the living God. Um, and then he gives the, his response. Okay, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And they leave him amazed. The question that they ask has two purposes. And the first purpose is if they get lucky to really get Jesus in boiling water. Because if he tells the people um, not to pay their taxes, the crowd will cheer and maybe start a rebellion, but the Herodians will go to Rome as quickly as they can, and Jesus will end up being squ- 
squashed and not on his own terms. If he tells the people not to pay this tax, it's sedition, it's treason, and he gets arrested before he's ready to be arrested. He doesn't do that. Forms of Christianity that get too cozy with the empire forget that Jesus was crucified by it, but in this moment, he's not willing to go there. And if he tells the people to pay their taxes, the crowd perhaps will dissipate, disappointed, having lost their leader, or they will turn on Jesus and side with the Pharisees and become co-conspirators in figuring out how to take Jesus down. Jesus avoids these two options. Jesus, I don't think, cares too much about the coin. But as N.T. Wright puts it, underneath his answer was a strong hint that Caesar's regime was a blasphemous nonsense and that God would overthrow it, end quote. I think in a private moment, maybe when, when, when if his disciples asked without malice, you know, what do we do with this tax? Are we, is this religious, are we committing idolatry by paying this tax? I think Jesus has a different sort of answer. If they come with some actual honesty, if he doesn't sense malice in the question, maybe he says something about Caesar's claims to be the son of the divine, the high priest. Maybe Jesus says something about taxes that keep the poor poor and the oppressed oppressed. And I think by Jesus' life and teaching, we can assume that maybe his answer would have been a little bit different. But in this moment, he, he chooses his words carefully. The Pharisees, the, the, the disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians have set up this dichotomy. If you pay taxes, you commit treason against God and against the people. If you don't pay taxes, you commit treason against Rome. Take your pick. Jesus has them pull out a coin and uses the word image to turn this this maxim back on them. He says, okay, pull out a coin. Whose image is on it? Okay, here's the deal. If it bears the image of Caesar, give it to Caesar. But if it bears the image of God, give it to God. If it bears Caesar's image on it, then treat it as if it's Caesar's. That's fine. But if it bears the image of God, Treat it as though it belongs to God. And of course, what this means for the Herodians is that the Pharisees, darn it, bear the image of God. And that vice versa for the Pharisees, the Herodians bear the image of God. And all people listening bear the image of God. He turns the maxim around on them. The Pharisees and the Herodians and all of us can handle people who fit into neat boxes They can hate one another as long as they know where they stand. They can handle people in categories. What they can't deal with is someone in the middle who reminds them that they are both image bearers and responsible for living accordingly. They are both image bearers and they ought to treat each other accordingly. The second purpose that they ask this question is, if Jesus somehow doesn't end up committing treason, at least his answer will have to incite division. There's no way out of this question that doesn't at least offend a few people and bring a few people more onto his side. He, at least we will cause a wedge to go in between the supporters. And a few weeks ago during communion, I talked about, you know, every week we say the disciples were gathered around the table, and I talked about who some of those disciples were. Think practically about who's actually sitting around this table with them. It's Matthew, 
who's a tax collector, and there's Simon, who's a zealot. There's Matthew, who's a Herodian. And there's Simon, who's, I mean, not technically a Pharisee, but basically a Pharisee. Simon is a Jewish nationalist. He lives, you know, probably in a commune that's secluded from the rest of the world. They want to overthrow Rome. And so when the text, when they come and ask this question, Simon says, oh, I got this one, Jesus. Don't pay that tax. Let's go. But there's also Matthew around the table, who is a Herodian, probably more from an urban area. Um, He works on behalf of Rome. Simon considered his work um, treason against um, their Jewish faith. But Matthew says, listen, Simon, I, I, I get it, but we live under Rome. Jeremiah says, plant trees, build houses, live where you are. We have to exist here. And so Simon and Matthew are both at this table with Christ, and they butt heads, and they're both listening intent, intensely as Jesus responds to this question. Matthew and Simon listen closely. The people listen closely. The left and the right both know, want, to where, want to know where Jesus stands. Those who support Rome listen. Those who oppose Rome listen. We all listen closely, wanting Christ to take our side. What is his answer? We will borrow whatever Bible verse is convenient to put him on our side. But Jesus' response gives neither group permission to say, See, I told you so. See, be like us. You can imagine Matthew leaving that conversation. Do you hear Simon? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you can hear Simon say, Matthew, you idiot. Didn't you hear? He said, give to God what is God's. Everything is God's. You can, you can, I, can, I mean, that's just such a familiar conversation to us, hearing the same thing and taking away such a different response to what Jesus said. But both of them have missed the point. Jesus isn't interested in converting Herodians into Pharisees or Pharisees into Herodians. He is interested in converting them into the pe- He's interested in converting them into people who see graven onto one another the image of God. He doesn't want Matthew to be like Simon or Simon to be like Matthew. He wants Simon to wash Matthew's feet. Not because Matthew is like him, but because Simon is becoming more and more like Christ. And he wants Matthew to wash Simon's feet, not because Simon agrees with him, but because Matthew is becoming more and more like Christ. He doesn't want Matthew to be like Simon or vice versa. He wants both of them to be like him. He wants the Pharisees to be freed from a religion that prohibits them from loving the Herodians because of their disagreement. He wants those who are made in the image of God to treat others not according to their politics or opinions, but according to the image of they bear, which is his own. Jesus avoids the trap of divisive side choosing, and he insists, he reminds those who are asking that God's image is graven onto each person. He resists provoking division. And Jesus' witness here bleeds into the church because the church time and time again is going to be wedged between two opinions. Should Gentiles be allowed to be among us? Should they have to follow Jewish laws? Should they have to follow Jewish diets? Who is in and who is out? Jesus provides another option, an option that Miroslav Volf, a theologian that we often reference, calls soft difference. 
Wolf writes this, soft difference rejects the idea, become like me or get away. They have no need either to subordinate or damn others, but can allow others space to be themselves. For people who live the soft difference, mission fundamentally takes the form of witness and invitation. They seek to win others without pressure or manipulation, sometimes ever without a word. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, Peter writes to the church, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. The diverse group of disciples that are gathered around the table with Christ do not become less diverse as they become the church. They don't become more homogeneous as, it, as they live into what it means to be Christ. Matthew doesn't end up like Simon, and Simon doesn't end up like Matthew, but maybe through Christ's Spirit, they both end up being a little bit more themselves as they become more like Christ. The church becomes more and more diverse as it lives into Christ's Spirit. Following Jesus means living with a soft difference, which places us in an ambiguous place between sides where we are left to seek the image of God in people. It's probably worth noting that Jesus dies resisting the empire and in a way paying to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and rescuing for God what belongs to God on our behalf. Christ's death and resurrection free us to live in a different way in between the divisiveness of the world, living in such a way that others see our good deeds and our gentleness and give glory to God. May we have the strength and the courage to live in that ambiguous place. Pray with me. Show us Christ in one another. Make us servants strong and true. Give us all your love of justice so we do what you would do. Let us call all people holy and let us pledge our lives anew. Make us one with all the lowly. Let us all be one with you. God, I pray that that would be our song this week that we sing. That we who are restless would find it safe to return, that we would find you in one another, and that we would discern your face in one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.